Hello everyone and welcome. Today I'm joined by Zach Schumacher. Hi Zach. Hey, how's it going? Let's start with discussing your political socialization. So when you were growing up, did you talk about politics a lot, maybe with friends or family? So growing up, I would say we didn't really talk about politics with friends per se, um, or, or really with family for that matter at all. It was more about um, history was talked about a lot. Um, and I, my, I'm very close with my grandfather and he is very much into war history and the history of the United States. Um, that's one of his big passions. And so I remember having a lot of conversations with him growing up about, you know, the formation of America, the, especially and World War II and, and even the First World War as well. That was a big topic that he liked to talk about and tell stories about. And I remember just that being a big factor in just finding politics and, and the history around it and and things of that nature very very interesting to me and that kind of sparked something. Um, beginning in like 2014, I would say when Governor Walker ran for re-election in the state of Wisconsin, I remember that being a major point when the idea of politics became a point of discussion more so. Um, in both my household and in high school as well. I was 14 at the time, um, so I was a freshman in high school, and it was the first time that I remember politics being discussed on a more broad level, um, especially because I come from a town, a suburb of Milwaukee, that is very homogenous in their political beliefs. We, um, I'm in F. James Sensenbrenner's district, who he is leaving in January after serving 22 terms in the House of Representatives. Um, so he, he's a Republican, and he um, he's obviously been there for a very long time. So and he wins with broad margins every time. So I I came to a I came from a school that I think there was maybe three or four Democrats in our entire school um, in in grade school, and so politics was something that wasn't necessarily talked about because it was everybody had the same beliefs and ideologies. But I remember going to high school um, and I went to a private high school in downtown Milwaukee and being classmates with people that didn't have the same experiences as I did and have the same um, political stances on issues. I remember being discussed for the first time around the time of the gubernatorial election. And I remember that sparking a curiosity. It, it, was, it was like shocking to me. I remember sitting in... Um, a world history class, and the person next to me completely disagreed with what I had to say about, I forget what we were talking about, but I was shocked. And I, it was a very interesting interaction because it had never occurred before. I remember there being a lot of people that, um, you know, it would, be, it would be hard to talk to in, in that political climate and environment about anything else, and it was hard to be friends with them because... Um, we didn't like each other because of our politics. And mm-hmm. for some reason, that engrossed everything that we knew about each other. Um, and everything, every way that we saw each other was in this lens of our politics, um, which is, I guess, unfortunate, I would say. But that's just, that was just a reality of the situation. It was probably stemmed from a level of immaturity that luckily I would say I've grown out of. But for the most part, it was, it was a way of, socializing yourself beyond politics, but into a, you know, a friend group or in just larger socialization within the high school community was strictly on the basis of politics in some aspects, um, which was a 
a sad reality looking back at it, but um, but it just that's how it was. Mm-hmm. And more specifically, do you remember how maybe your family or the people around you spoke about the quote unquote government? So more positively or negatively? I'm not sure if people really talked about government per se when I was growing up. And if I did, maybe I didn't um, register it in that way. It was more so either America and the ideas of Americanism and, um, and you know, the values to which we, we, we hold America to or specific people in government. I remember my grandfather and my parents, they, they wouldn't necessarily talk about, you know, the the nature of government per se, but they would use specific people. Like when I was growing up, obviously president Obama was in in office at that point. So it would be about Obama or the Obama administration. And it would Mm -hmm. be uh, talking specifically about them and the actions that they are doing. It was often pretty negative. um, And that would be because I come from a family that believes in, in small government. um, And so I, I do as well. And so, um, in a in a democrat administration where where government did expand that was that was viewed very negatively and so the the aspects around the actions to which the government were was pursuing was was very negative um it um was often about you know the usurpations of of the constitution was often on the minds of the people that I would listen to and talk about and the ways in which um, both the legislative body and the executive branch would um, would disregard some of the limitations that they had as as bodies of government and as entities of government, and also just the ways in which um, we were being affected by it. Um, specifically, I remember you know when the Obamacare um, was being debated. Mm-hmm. Now, to change course a little bit, I'm wondering if you have a specific memory of when you first came into contact with the term capitalism. And as a part two, what do you associate today with the word capitalism? So I, I don't remember of a, of a specific instance when I first learned about capitalism. I I remember growing up always hearing especially for my grandfather who, who loved history, he would talk about, um, he would talk about, you know, systems I remember. And he would talk about countries that now knowing today would never, um, or did, did not use a capitalist system where they, they engaged in some areas of socialism. And I remember him always, always talking about those countries in a negative way in the way in which they ran their economies and things like that. And about the infringement on the individual rights to which that, um, those systems of government and of economics tend to lead. And I remember that being very negative, but I remember, I remember always hearing about capitalism being something or, or more so the American system and the American economic system being one of, of, you know, moral decency and, and prosperity. And that there was this I, I remember my grandfather always saying that that this is the way that you can end poverty. And he was talking about you know the form of of capitalism to which America uses. Um, so I don't remember it ever being defined more so as capitalism or free markets per se, but more about the idea of American of the American economy versus other systems. 
Um, mm-hmm. And today, I would say capitalism, I would, I would probably define it as as a, a, an economic system that would be built on, on trading goods and services um, for profit by the owners rather than the control of the, of the businesses being run by the state. I would say that would be how I would define it today. Um, mm-hmm. Now that I have a little bit better sense of what exactly the economic system is all about. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking more specifically about your school experiences, are there any classes that have particularly informed your view of the government and its role? Yeah, I would say sophomore year of high school, I took a class on the politics of U.S. healthcare, and basically what it did was it broke up. There were three sections of the course, and the first one was um, pre-Obamacare and the systems that were in place, and how how you know the United States needed healthcare. Then there, then it kind of then gradually talked about why um, the Affordable Care Act was, was introduced and things like that. And then the second part of the course was all about um, what was Obamacare, how it got passed, and the effects to which it has had on the American healthcare system. And I remember that then the third one was a little bit more about social issues and health. Um, so it wasn't quite as politically engaging about Obamacare specifically as the first two was. It was more about um, the child mortality rates in the city of Milwaukee, which is a serious problem, um, and, and things of that nature. But I remember the first two um sections, there was a lot of discussion about what the roles of government are in, in the healthcare system. And I remember kind of, it was, it was, a, it was very discussion-based, this whole course. And I remember listening to some of the people and they talked about, I remember our professor said at one point that maybe one day, because we were talking about how um, in, in the healthcare system, there is a lack of um, general physicians and everybody likes to be specialized because you can make more money doing that. Um, and I remember the professor saying, it, it just she kind of threw it out there for us to discuss, but it, should the government dictate what kind of doctor you can be? And I remember like being stunned by it. And, you know, I thought some people thought it would be a great idea because it would mitigate, you know, too many people trying to go into certain areas, but I remember being, you know, astonished by the question even being proposed that we would allow government to dictate what we, how we would want to live our lives in the professions to which we would want to pursue. And I think, and, and I thought, I mean, just hearing that really cemented for me the idea that, oh my God, I would never want, I would never want that. And mm-hmm. I don't, Right, and I, I think I think truly that's I don't think that's necessarily more so a conservative belief. I think that that's I think it could be a fairly universal idea um, that could be bipartisan because I, I generally don't like the government telling me what to do, and I would assume that Democrats would would probably not be too fond if they had to tell the Trump administration the last four years and get their approval on what sort of jobs they would like to pursue. So I remember that being a, a class where I, and, and there were many other instances about when we talked about how government should um, be involved in the healthcare system just on a more general level. Is it, um, is it a right? Is it a privilege? And then what sort of social nets do we include in our healthcare system to make sure that it is accessible? And I remember, I remember after taking that course, 
I, my, my views changed a little bit in maybe how I would make the argument, but for the most part, it, it very much cemented my idea of, of how I believe government should operate in, in a, in a, both a capitalist society, but also just in, you know, any society, um, where, you know, I, I firmly believe that, that governments should be limited to the greatest extent. Um, and I think that, of course, definitely helps solidify it. Great. Thank you. Now, for this next part, I'd like to discuss how you view the government's duties and responsibilities to its citizens. And we'll be discussing a few contemporary situations. So the first one with New Zealand, I know you had a chance to look at an article about its 2019 budget, with which prioritized the, quote, well-being of its citizens over traditional goals like productivity or economic growth that are usually found in the government's budget. So my question to you is, is this type of budgetary model desirable for the U.S.? And if it is desirable, is it attainable? So with this question, I think it's, I I don't think um, it's necessarily attainable in the United States, um, simply because I, I question how any of this can if you don't let the, if, if you muddy the waters too much of, of the economy by, by instituting these restrictive policies. Um, mm-hmm. When we're talking about um, the budget, the budget would be a little different than the economy, I would say. Um, how, how the government wants to spend their money, I think, is, is a more appropriate way to address these issues, absolutely. But I also think that one of the ways in which you help people's mental health, the way that you help reduce child poverty, is you unleash a robust economic system. Um, and the well-being, how I would measure the well-being of its citizens would be how few people look to government for assistance and, and how many people in any given year no longer need government assistance in, in areas like Medicaid in this country, um, SNAP and other food assistance programs in um, vouchers for affordable housing or how many people are able to uh, find work and and no longer require unemployment benefits and things like that. I think that those are the ways that you measure how well a citizen is. Um, Because ultimately, I think that if you are able to live on your own and without the government helping you, I think that you are living, in most regards, a, a good life. And, and you're, you're more likely to live a good life when you don't require those things, when you're economically prosperous. Um, but I also think that it, um, it goes back to an idea that maybe not everybody sees, that I think some people would argue that government assistance is a good thing. Um, and, and I think it is to help people, but I think ultimately the goal of government assistance is to get people off of it and is to make sure that these people aren't on it forever. It's a temporary fix to a problem. And, and I think that, I think that these, all these goals are very attainable. Um, improving mental health, I think, is extremely important, especially in this society. Um, for people like you and I, college-educated um, people, especially in our 20s, mental health and and depression, anxiety, and suicidality is a major problem, especially in, during COVID. It's it's a terrifying reality on some of the some of the issues that surround mental health, and it's it's something that pierces the core of of 
most people, I would, I would argue, especially in my own personal experiences, I know many people that deal with mental health. I've had my own um, struggles in some points in my life with mental health. It's a very real problem. Same with, same with child poverty. And I think that um, the United States has gotten better in, in responding to that, um, especially in urban areas. I think rural poverty is still a, a very um, hard issue in this country, especially in the Appalachia regions. Um, but I think that when you, when you unleash an economic system that allows people and goods and services to, uh, to travel and to, uh, and to find their way into people's hands, I think that's how, you, that's how you can fix all of these problems. The market, I would say, would be the best way to transition to a low-emission, sustainable economy. If you, if you allow people in the private sector to research and find ways and new innovative technologies to, to push an economy towards these things, I think absolutely it's possible in this country. I think it just has to be done with caution that these mandates and these, these budgetary requirements by government doesn't squash the prosperity of the economy and the and the nature of it, because then you're going to create more harm than you do, um, than you do goodness. And I think that it, it's, a, it's a balance that would need to be played with. I would probably want to see more specifics on the New Zealand budget um, to see how they do this and how they, how they mandate mm-hmm. these resources um, to, to see just exactly how, how desirable um, and attainable that would be for the United States. And it's interesting that you mentioned SNAP because it's actually part of my next question. So the U.S. has programs like SNAP and temporary assistance for needy families and Medicaid, etc., that provide a social safety net for people. And my question is, is this social safety net necessary? And as a second part, is the social safety net as we have it now working and functioning as it's meant to? So I think I think it's necessary to a certain extent. I think I think that government should there there is a rule for government to help people. But again, I think I think it needs to be an incentive program more so to get off of them than they are to comfortably live on them. I think Medicaid and I'll stick with Medicaid more so because Medicare is a little bit different because, you know, it, it, it's for the seniors. But Medicaid, I think, needs to be restructured. First of all, Medicare and Medicaid are wildly expensive, and they need to be reformed from the ground up. And we could, I could, I could talk for a very long time on on those two programs specifically. But more so, I think what these what these programs need to do, and I, I understand some of them do it, but I think they need to be reorganized so they're more practical. But they need to be they need to be a gradual exit. There needs to be a graduate. A gradual exit strategy from them, meaning as you – there are certain cases with people on Medicaid where they are too wealthy to be on Medicaid, but they are too poor to, to have access to health insurance on their own. That, that, that's, that's not a system that's working then. If you have people that are falling in this crack and they're stuck there, and then you have this issue that those people then have no incentive to get off Medicaid – because they're sitting in a spot where if they get that pay raise, sure, they no longer have to be on Medicaid, which is great, but 
they're going to be struggling even worse than they would be if they're on Medicaid because they can't afford health care or it takes up too much of their of their um, family's budget where then maybe they can't have food and they're off the SNAP programs because because they make too much money for that as well. They need to be restructured that they that they bounce off of one another a little bit more than they are and they need to they need to look for a new way to uh, to gradually leave people off of these and wane them off of these systems. They're absolutely necessary, but they're not working in the way. And there are other avenues that we can do to help prevent people to fall into poverty. I think, first of all, one of the ways that social safety nets, I think, could necessarily, could, you can, you can help fill in those cracks, um, would be through, through charities, through your local churches and things like that. We have a collection basket at our church that helps um, people in our community, um, when, you know, every Sunday when the baskets go around at, at our church, um, one of them is for the, for the, or for the, the parents and for some of the tidings that they, that they work on. But another one is for, is for people that come to the church with assistance, that need assistance in, you know, paying for certain things that they, that they just can't. And I think that those are more tangible ways to help people than these programs. I think a community surrounding somebody in our in our parish that is struggling with cancer and helping, you know, create fundraisers and things like that to help them pay for their chemo treatment more directly affects their life than than some of these programs do. Um, and more than government assistance does, especially when you're talking about raising taxes. Um, but in, in terms of of other ways to, to keep people off of this. Well, there are, there are three different ways. Um, this is, this would be from the Brookings Institute, I believe. Yes. Yes. The Brookings Institute. They, they found that the three ways, the three most important ways to keep yourself from falling into, um, cyclical poverty and intergenerational poverty is to finish high school, to be married before having children and to get a job. All three, I believe, are, are fairly attainable in, in, in America. Everybody is capable of doing that. And, and for those of you or for those people who say that, that jobs aren't available, yes, we're in a pandemic. But before the pandemic, in, in early 2020, this would have been in April, I believe the statistic came out, there were 7 million unfilled jobs in America. There are jobs out there for people to, to get into. Um, and obtaining jobs... And, and doing these three things can help stay out of poverty, keep you out of poverty, and they can help alleviate the system. Thank you. Now, I'd like to continue with the theme of how you view the government's responsibilities to its citizens. The U.S. has extensive income and wealth inequality, especially along racial lines. How do you view this situation? Is focusing on reducing income inequality within the government's purview and if the government does make reducing income inequality a priority, are there any potential drawbacks? Yeah, so I don't think that the government has much of a role in this situation at all. Um, when I see, you know, the question of fostering wealth equality, um, I guess it would depend, or I always ask, what, what does that mean? Um, if we're, if we're going to talk about taking Jeff Bezos' wealth, and redistributing it because he has an enormous amount of money. As I think, is he still the richest man in the world? I would, I would think he is today. I think so. Um, yeah, I think he is. Yeah, and and giving it to other people, I think that's, I, I think that's a terrible idea. Um, I don't think that that is is 
right or just in any circumstance. He's created a a, a multi multi billion dollar corporation off of good ideas that he had and other people don't and and didn't have, and so he should be rewarded for that. I understand people get upset the fact that there are starving people in this country, and he can lose a billion dollars today and it wouldn't impact his life at all. But the reality is many lives have been made better because of the innovation that he has produced and the company that he has produced, which has given him these billions and billions of dollars, employs thousands and even in some cases millions of people all throughout the world. And that should be celebrated. And if you take his money and you redistribute it, or you, if you give it to other people, how does that incentivize other people with good ideas to bring them to the community when, when their wealth then, after they, after they create a, a company or create a good or service, why, why, why would they want to do that if their money is just going to be given, you're given to other people and taken from them? I think this ultimately comes down from a rule of personal responsibility. I think if you're able to in this country and maybe it comes from, from my religious upbringing, but giving to charity is a very important part of your duty as a, as a person and in a society. And it's the way in which you can, as I was talking about before with, with the role of, you know, the, the parish or, or your church community and helping people that are struggling, giving back to those people and, and helping those people in, in donations and in starting foundations and things like that, I think is the way that you, that, that wealthy people have a responsibility to help others. I think if you're talking about raising people from poverty, I think that's a great idea. And I think the, it, it's in the government's interest to get people out of poverty because then they are less reliant on the government to provide services to them, such as Medicaid, housing tax credits, and things like that. But what you need to do is, as I was talking about before, create job incentive programs, create things that connect them with opportunities. Um, I work for Senator, or I did work, I, I just completed my internship with Senator Johnson, um, and he helped build this thing called the Joseph Project in the city of Milwaukee, which takes people, it's connected with one of the churches in the local community, and it takes people who have, in some cases, were incarcerated or have been through rehabilitation programs, and it gives them a job, it's a two-day job training, two-day or two-week, two weeks, because it's all over, there's two class periods, yes. Um, and it gives them the opportunity then to provide skills and build skills to get jobs. And it connects them with manufacturers in the state of Wisconsin who are in need of people on their floors building products in, in our great state. And I think those are the ways in which you work to eradicate poverty by finding ways to connect people with job resources. Taking people's money from the top 1% or 5% and giving it to these people who are in the, in the lowest and, and poorest areas of our society, I don't think that helps anybody. It doesn't give the people on the bottom end the skills and the ability to work and, and create a life for themselves. And it doesn't incentivize people to be wealthy and to produce goods and services in America when you say, that's great. Yes, make, make a company like Amazon, but don't get too wealthy or we'll take your money. I, I, don't, think that, I don't think that incentivizes either people. And so I think, I, I think the best way to do it is to, is to help bring, bring resources and opportunities to low-income Americans 
rather than redistributing wealth from the top. That's when you can see a, the gap close by, by raising people from the bottom up rather than doing that and at the same time ripping down and, and taking people and limiting the success of individuals at the top. I see what you're saying. And for my last question, I'm wondering how you view things like healthcare or housing, because recently we've been seeing some campaigns for healthcare or housing for all. And do you view these as commodities or as human rights? If you view them as commodities, how does the free market increase access to them? If you view them as human rights, is the U.S. government equipped to secure healthcare or housing for all? Sure. No, I, I think that I think that housing and healthcare is absolutely a commodity. I don't think that they are rights, specifically because we're talking, and I know Senator Sanders talks about this all the all the time, as we need to make healthcare a human right in America. Philosophically, that that is an incoherent thought. You cannot make something a right. Either it is or it is not. It can't become one. And and as people in the West in the Western world, we have come to know that rights are granted, and I talked about this a little bit before, by nature and nature's God. That's, that's what we believe in America, and that's what, that's what Western philosophical thought has, has produced for hundreds of years. And so therefore, if they, if they exist and they exist based off of the state of nature, they cannot be provided by government because they were there before government. They predate the, the existence of, of any sort of institution. And so... The only thing government can do is infringe people's ability to obtain them, which is, is part of the limitations that we have set as, as America on our government. And so it leaves private individuals to access them. And so I think that the market, uh, by allowing the market to, um, to engage with things like healthcare, I'll stick to healthcare, um, if I may, um, for, for my example. And you, you, can, you can create more access to them. So we were talking in my healthcare class about some of the rama, or some of the counter proposals that Republicans had brought up in 2017 um, to, um, as they called it, repeal and replace Obamacare. And one of the things that I know Speaker Ryan was very, um, um, he, he was was very, um, he, he liked his, um, the idea and he was very vocal about it with the idea of a voucher system that awards people or grants low-income families a certain amount of money to be used as a voucher in the healthcare system. So say, you know, you, you, the government gives you $1,000 to use um, for your healthcare. Okay, great. You take those $1,000 and you use them in the private sector or in the free market as, as I do as somebody that is not on on a public health care option, and who is not um, in need of government assistance. And by, by allowing that money and those, those people to engage in the system and have the same amount of choice as I do um, and, and engage with the market in that way, you can lower the prices for goods and services, specifically, let's say, health care, because companies like Blue Cross and Blue Shield will see there's a demand for for healthcare at these costs for these people who are spending these lower amounts of money on, on healthcare. And so we need to provide a service for them if you want to make money. As a, as a 
if you, if you are a business, you're always looking to enter new markets and find new people to purchase your products and services. And so if you allow people on the Medicaid system to engage with the same market as people do who do not have Medicaid, you will allow the markets to lower the prices because the demand will be lower at the lower end of the spectrum because more people are engaging. Great. Well, that concludes our interview. Thank you so much for being here, Zach, and have a good night.